Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 12 will be our passage this morning. And there are times when we feel very alone. When we feel like we are the only one. The only one who gets it. The only one who cares. The only one who understands, who hasn't given in or hasn't given up. There are times we feel like we are the only one who's really following the Lord or our church is the only church that's really taking the Bible seriously. Thankfully, those feelings are always wrong. We are never alone. But it's also comforting to know that we are not the first people to feel that way. Elijah, whose story we just read, thought he was the only one. He lived in dark and difficult days. Uh, King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, are still today infamous for their evil and wickedness and idolatry. And uh, as Isaiah, or excuse me, as Elijah said, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, that is, they've broken his laws, thrown down your altars, destroyed the worship of God, and killed your prophets. They refused to listen to God's word. Killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah thought he was the only one. He felt like he was the only one. That everyone else had forsaken the Lord. That Israel had killed all her prophets except Elijah. Elijah was the only one still faithful to the Lord. Or so he thought. But he was not. There was a remnant who had not turned from the Lord to idolatry. That's why God said to Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah felt like he was the only one who hadn't bowed to the idol of the day. But God said, no, I've got 7,000 people in Israel. It's not the whole nation. Not as many as Elijah might have hoped, but it's way more than he thought. 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Even when we feel like we are the last ones standing for God's truth, we are not. As my pastor loved to say, God always has his people. God always has his people. Or, to use the language of Romans 11, there is always a faithful remnant. So let's read together Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 12. Paul says, I ask then, Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, before we dig into the details of those verses, I want to make a broad point about what Paul is doing here in the book of Romans. And uh, I want to make this point for a couple of reasons. One, we are in what is probably Paul's most nuanced argument, not only in Romans, but in all of his writings. There, is, there are moves and counter moves. He, he, he says what he's trying to say, and then he knows somebody's going to misunderstand him. So he says, is this what I'm saying? No, of course, that's not what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say. It's very nuanced what he's saying. And um, I, I want to draw attention to that this morning because we are living in extremely polarized times that lack nuance. Where people are very quick to jump to conclusions about what people say, what people mean, what their motives are. And many people seem unwilling to have nuanced conversations about complex and complicated problems and issues. Now, there are some things that don't require nuance. Elijah said, if Baal is God, worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. We don't need to have a two-hour debate about that. We don't need to have a long, back-and-forth, nuanced conversation. It's black and white. It's either Baal or it's Yahweh. But there are conversations and there are truths that do require a lengthy back and forth, that do require nuance, that do not lend themselves to sound bites and one-liners. Right, think about Paul's argument in Romans chapter 7, where he's talking about the role of the law. And he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. I know, if Paul went on a major news network right, to explain his theology, explain what he believed, and he said that, somebody would say, oh, Paul, doesn't, Paul thinks the law is bad. Paul thinks the law is the problem. But he comes back and says, no, 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 the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
I'm not saying that the law is the problem. I'm saying that sin is the problem, and sin hijacks the law. But if you just take one line from Paul, you can completely misunderstand him. And so he comes back and says, am I saying, what shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Same thing in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. He, he talks about how not all Israel is Israel. But the, the true Israel is the Israel that is uh, the children of promise. Those who believe. Uh, those like uh, Isaac, whom God said, uh, through Isaac is your offspring going to be named. And those like uh, Jacob, whom God chose instead of Esau. And some people will hear that and say, well, if that's the case, then God's not just. So Paul says, okay, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And then he explains. All through chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's been talking about why so many of the Israelites don't believe in the Messiah. Why they have rejected Jesus. And why so many of the Gentiles have believed, have received the Messiah, and have been counted righteous. So he's come to the point now in chapter 11 where he knows some people are going to think, Paul, you, just, you must think that God has just rejected Israel. He's just done. He's, he's had enough and he has cast Israel aside and that's why he's saving the Gentiles. And so he comes to chapter 11 verse 1 and he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Again, if we were to just take sound bites from Paul... People could take Paul's words and say all kinds of things that Paul completely disagrees with. So, my broad point that I want to urge upon you this morning is since we are people who have studied the Scripture and have followed the arguments of men like Moses and Isaiah and Paul and even Jesus, and we have seen how people have sometimes unintentionally, sometimes deliberately misunderstood the things that Jesus was doing and the things that Jesus was saying. And we have seen how Paul anticipated the many, many ways that people would misunderstand what he was saying and draw wrong conclusions from the things that he was teaching. Let's be the people who acknowledge that some things, some discussions, some problems require Nuance. They require some back and forth. They require some patient listening. They, they in, require some meditative thinking. Not everything can be boiled down to a soundbite. Let's not be captive to the spirit of the age that just wants to take sides and draw lines in the sand and not listen to anybody on the other side, no matter what they have to say. Let's not be like that. Let's be different than that. Let's acknowledge that sometimes there is no one-line, quick-fix, easy answer. Sometimes it takes chapters to explain what we're trying to say and what we need to do and how we need to think and how we need to live. All right, so that's, that's my broad point from Paul this morning. Now let's dig into the details. First thing Paul wants to make crystal clear in this passage is that God has not rejected Israel. Remember, we said that uh, he's been dealing with the fact that many 
Jews have rejected the Messiah. Many Gentiles have received the Messiah. And he spent chapter 9 and chapter 10 explaining why that ought not take us by surprise. That ought not make us think that God um, has somehow failed to keep his promise to Israel. And now he wants to say it also does not mean that God has rejected Israel. He was talking at the end of chapter 10 about how um, Israel has been obstinate and stubborn and refused to come to him. And uh, yet he has been revealing himself to those who did not seek him and and did not um, ask for him, that is, the Gentiles. And so, again, he comes to this question at the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he says, absolutely not. And let me give you three reasons why we know that's not the case. The first reason we know that God has not rejected his people is Paul himself. He says in the middle of verse 1, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, I'm a Jew, Paul is saying. God clearly hasn't rejected his people because he saved me. And remember, Paul was not exactly the, the poster boy candidate for the next apostle. He was persecuting the church, throwing Christians in jail. He was in opposition to Jesus before God stopped him in his tracks. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, You're mine, you're going to be one of my apostles, and you're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. If God was done with Israel, it would have been really easy to forget about Paul and to leave him right where he was. But he didn't. He saved him. That's number one reason why we know that God hasn't rejected his people. Number two is the evidence from Elijah's day. The the remnant that was uh, preserved by God in the time of Elijah. So he he quotes this passage about um, Elijah. reminds us of the the time of Elijah that we just read about. And talked a bit about uh, that Elijah appeals to God against Israel. And he thinks he's the only one. and, And they've killed the prophets. And they've torn down the altars. And... Ahab and Jezebel, who are um, reigning in Israel at that time, are, are, are idolaters and, and they're wicked and things are dark and terrible. And Paul reminds us what God says to Elijah when he says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. If at that time, when there was so much darkness and so much idolatry and things had gotten so bad that Elijah felt like, I must be the only one left faithful to the Lord. If God wanted to reject his people, that would have been an easy time to do it. He just said, that's enough. Had enough. But even at that time, God had preserved a faithful remnant among his people, a group who still believed, who were faithful to the Lord, who had not turned to idols, God had preserved them. And so if he preserved a remnant at that time, when it was so dark and so many had turned from the Lord, why would we assume that God has not preserved a remnant now, despite the fact that so many of the Jews have rejected the Messiah and turned from him? It's terrible But it's not anything new. And because God does not change, we know that what God has done in the past is often what He's doing right now and will do again in the future. 
And so we should be more likely to assume that God has not rejected his people because he's always preserved a remnant in the past. And unless he has told us otherwise, we've got good reason to assume he's preserving a remnant in the present and will continue to preserve a remnant in the future. And then Paul says, third line of evidence is, we know that is what God's doing in the present, meaning at the time that Paul is writing this. He says, verse 5, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Who would that be? Well, that would be the Jews who were saved on the day of Pentecost. And the many thousands who were added to the church in Jerusalem throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts. That would be the people who were Jews who heard Paul preach the gospel in the synagogue and didn't reject his message and run him out of town, but received his message and believed. There were probably some believing Jews at the church in Rome. So there's evidence all around them that though there has not been a mass believing in the Messiah among the Jews, like all of us would have hoped, there has nonetheless been a remnant of Jews, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the Roman Empire, who have responded positively positively to the gospel and have believed. So there's evidence all around them that God has not rejected his people. Now again, not as many have believed as we would have hoped, but some have. Many have, just not most. So God is faithful to Israel despite their unfaithfulness. Despite the fact that most of them have been unfaithful to the Lord. He has remained faithful to them. And he has not and will not abandon Israel as a whole. He has not abandoned them. He will not abandon them. Alright, so he's not rejected his people. So what is going on? Well, there's this remnant, Paul says. And we should not be surprised to hear him say at the end of verse 5 that this remnant is chosen by grace and not by works. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because that's what Paul was saying back in chapter 9 about Jacob and Esau. Why did God choose to give his promise to Jacob and his descendants and not to Esau and his descendants? Well, Paul tells us there in Romans 9 it was not because of their works. It was not because Jacob was better than Esau. I mean, neither one of them were really great guys. And not only that, but Paul says... This was told to their mother that the older would serve the younger before they were born. They were twins. They had the same father. They weren't even born yet. And God said, this is the one that I've chosen. What what does that mean? It means it was grace. It wasn't works. Neither one of them earned it or deserved it. But God chose to give his grace to Jacob. And God has done the same thing with this remnant. This remnant is not a group of people that can be justified in some spiritual pride because they're better than all the rest of the Jews who didn't believe. They they can't puff out their chest and say, well, I know most of the Jews have rejected the Messiah, but not us. Because we're the smart ones, or we're the spiritual ones, or we're the the ones who really listened, or, or whatever. No, they have been set apart by God's grace. 
It was God's mercy that caused them to believe. He says, there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If they were set aside on the basis of their works, then they couldn't also be set aside on the basis of grace because it has to be one or the other. And if it was on the basis of works, then who gets the credit for that? Not God, but them. If our salvation is by our works, who gets the credit for that? Us and not God. But the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is by grace through faith. God gets the credit. God gets the glory because he's the one who's changed our hearts and opened our eyes and granted us faith to believe. He's the one who's set apart this remnant of Jews who believe while so many do not. God always works in such a way that He gets the credit, that He gets the glory, that He gets the praise and the honor. And that's the way He's working among His people even now. So what do we say to that, Paul asks, verse 7. What then? Israel Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Toward the end of uh, chapter 9, he says that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They failed to obtain what they were seeking. They wanted to be righteous in God's sight, but Paul says they sought it the wrong way. Verse, uh, this is Romans 9.32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, me, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So he says, Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was seeking a right standing with God. But it failed to obtain it. Because it pursued it the wrong way. And ultimately they stumbled over Jesus the Messiah. And then he clarifies this a little bit. Because we know it's not that all Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. He says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect are the chosen. Those two words mean the same thing. And the elect and the chosen are the remnant. They are those God has set apart. Just like he did in Elijah's day. He preserved a remnant for himself that had not bowed the knee to Baal. So at the present time, Paul says, he has preserved a remnant who have not rejected the Messiah, but who have received Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord, the promised Savior. And they have obtained what Israel was seeking. They have obtained a right standing with God because they have trusted in the Messiah. And when you turn to Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, when you turn from your sin to Christ and you confess Him as Lord and God, your sins are pardoned and you are declared righteous in God's sight. You have a uh, right standing with God and you have fellowship with God and the Holy Spirit who is God himself, comes to dwell inside of you, you receive, you obtain what Israel was seeking. But he says, the rest of the Jews were hardened. Now that's not a new word for Paul either. Remember back in chapter 9, he said not only that um, God shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, but he also hardens whomever he will harden. And he gives the example of Pharaoh. God says to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
And as you read the story of Exodus, it's very clear that God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that God can send all ten plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that no one will have any doubt who the real God is when he delivers his people from the might of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is not the only person in the Bible who gets his heart hardened. As early as Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, God says to Israel through Moses, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, in Isaiah chapter 6, and God said, Who will go for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. It was a word of judgment that God sent Isaiah to preach against Israel. He told Isaiah, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And later in Isaiah 29, verse 10, God says, The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So when Paul says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, this is nothing new. Just like Paul said in uh, Romans 9 and in Romans 10, what God is doing with the Jews in his day is what God has done with the Jews throughout their history, throughout the Old Testament. As the Jewish people have rejected God's covenant and broken his laws and turned to idols, God has poured out upon them his judgment. In some cases, that means blinding their eyes and uh, deafening their ears and hardening their hearts. And so we should not be surprised that when they commit the ultimate act of idolatry in rejecting the Messiah himself, who is God in the flesh, that there would be along with that a hardening, a judgment from God that would explain what was going on. That's what Paul says in in verse 8. He says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he quotes from Psalm 69 in verse 9. and He says, and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Psalm 69 is one of the psalms that is clearly fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus. Psalm uh, 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The first half of that verse zeal for your house has consumed me, is quoted in John chapter 2 to explain what was going on when Jesus cleared or cleansed the temple. And the second half of that verse, where it says, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, Paul quotes that later in Romans in chapter 15 as also being fulfilled in Christ. So when Psalm 69 speaks of the enemies of God, the enemies of His anointed, and the judgment that will come upon them, it's ultimately talking about 
what would happen to those who reject the Messiah. In fact, the verse right before the section that Paul quotes, and remember how important this is to Paul assumes that we know more than he's telling us. Right? In Psalm 69, he's quoting verses 22 and 23, but verse 21 says this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Does that sound familiar? What was Jesus offered when he was on the cross? When he said, I thirst, they offered him sour wine to drink. And then the next line of the psalm says, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. In other words, for those of my people who would reject their God, their Messiah, and offer him sour wine when he is thirsty, and give him up to be crucified by their enemies, there is a certain kind of terrible judgment that that those who would do such a thing deserve to receive. That's what David is saying in that psalm. And that's what Paul is saying is happening to the Jews in his own day. They are experiencing the judgment that God is pouring out upon them for their rejection of the Messiah. Now, we should be very, very clear, though some in the history of the church have been confused on this point, we should be very, very clear that God in no way wants us to enact any of this judgment on his people who are rebelling against the Messiah. This in no way means that we should have any kind of hostile attitude or actions towards the Jewish people. We should reject any such notion vehemently. Paul himself, who is quoting these things, tells us that he is experiencing unceasing anguish over the lostness of the Jewish people. His prayer to God is that they might be saved. He is not calling upon people to treat the Jews badly because of their rejection of the Messiah. He is modeling for us a brokenhearted prayerfulness, longing for their salvation, but also a deep theological explanation of what God is doing. And we need to keep both of those things clear. And we also need to remember, because we are prone to forget it, that God's judgment is real, and it was not left behind in the Old Testament. Judgment did not cease to exist when we got to the Gospel of Matthew. Judgment for sin is still a real thing that God does. And one of the reasons why we ought to fear Him. Now, one more thing we need to notice in verse 11 and 12. Paul gives us just a taste of God's plan in miniature. And he gives us something hopeful to end on. So we don't end with this word of judgment. What Paul says here in these two verses, he is going to expand in the rest of chapter 11, but he gives us a taste of it here. He says, so I ask, did they stumble, talking about Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, if Israel has so badly stumbled over the stumbling stone, is that the end game? Is that the point? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble simply so that they would fall? Or he might mean, did they stumble so that they might fall and never get up? And Paul says, no, that's not at all the point of their stumbling. Because what has happened is through Israel's sin, through Israel's rejection of the Messiah, the gospel has come to the Gentiles. And many, 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 many people have been saved. And so here's how Paul reasons from that. If a bad thing, the Jews rejecting Jesus, if the ba- a bad thing has resulted in a good thing, the Gentiles coming to faith, then... What if God does a good thing for the Jews? Won't that be even better? If their trespass, their sin, means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion or their fullness mean? If God has not rejected His people, if He's not done with them, but that their rejection of Him has led to something good, how much more can we hope for something great knowing that God is not yet done with His people? And that's what the rest of chapter 11 is going to be about. But just that little taste reminds us, not only there, but all throughout this first section of the chapter, reminds us that God always has more and better things in store than we expect. When we feel like Elijah and we think we're the only one, God says, no, I've got 7,000 people who are on your side, who are on my side. When we think so many of the Jews have turned away from the Lord, I mean, God must have just given up on them. God says, no, I've not rejected my people. Not only that, I've got a plan for them that is going to bring even greater blessing into the world than their rejection has done. I've got more up my sleeve, so to speak. I've got more planned. I've got more prepared, better things prepared than you have yet begun to think. God is not done with Israel and he is not done with us. So when you feel like you are alone, And like the rest of the world has abandoned the God of truth, remember these words. Remember God's promise. Remember the remnant. And remember the greatness of our God. Let's pray.